Um, our next speaker is uh, pretty much a world-renowned author. Uh, Eric Metaxas is the New York Times best-selling author of Is Atheism Dead? Fish Out of Water, Martin Luther, If You Can Keep It, Bonhoeffer, and Amazing Grace. He's appeared in cultural as a cultural commentator on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and all the networks. He's a host of the Eric Metaxas Show, a nationally syndicated daily radio show heard on 300 outlets nationally and uh, on uh, the TBN television network. We're so honored to have you with us today, Eric. Why don't you come on up and share with the folks. Guys, let's make Eric feel welcome today. Really looking forward to it, you too, brother. Thank you, thank you. Wow, wow. That is unnecessary and unbiblical, but don't stop. Praise God, God bless you, God bless you. Please, please be seated, not so fast. Okay, oh, come on. Praise Jesus, praise the Lord. Can I say that here? Ha, praise the Lord. What a blessing to be part of this. Honestly, uh, it's, uh, it's really, daunting and humbling uh, to follow speakers uh, such as we've heard today. Uh, I, I, I won't mention them, but uh, some of them are named, I don't know, David Barton, Mario Marillo, you know, it just gets, it gets ridiculous. I, uh, I feel very honored. Thank you, Andrew Womack, for letting me be a part of this. Um, there's so much I want to say. Uh, and I'm speaking tomorrow uh, around, around the same time. And so I thought I'd, I'd save the best for last and do the kind of boring stuff in this session. I'm sorry. I hope, I hope you don't mind. I just have some things I want to share. They're, they're not that important, but, uh, but tomorrow it'll be great. It'll be great. Um, there really is so much I, I want to share. Uh, I've written a lot of books, and um, I am... It's kind of a funny thing. When you're an author... Um, you always want people to buy your books, but why? Well, you know, yeah, you have to pay the rent and all that, but let me be honest with you. <laughs> if you follow Jesus and he calls you to write these books, you, you want people to hear what it is you have to say. So, I, I, you know, I don't care if people listen to an audiobook. A lot of times people come up to me in the book signing line and say, I'm sorry, I, I listened to it on Audible. And I think, what, you're, you're apologizing to me because you, you listened to my book because you didn't actually read it with your own eyes? Shame on you. Go back and read it again. It's like, it's, it's about what's in it. And following um, a lot of what David Barton just shared, you realize we're we know we're living in sick times. Did you know that? We know we're living in insane times. Now, if you don't know that, you're insane. Um, if you do know that, it proves that you're sane, okay? But the thing is, what we're experiencing now is really the, the, the flower that was planted a long time ago. And I'm saying this in the negative sense, right? In other words, not, everything that's happened didn't happen in the last two years or in the last five years. I would say it is because of the abdication of the Church of Jesus Christ from fulfilling its biblical role that America is in the hellish situation it's in today. Let's be honest. Let's, let's, let's put it on the table. Let's put it on the table. The church has been silent. And um, we are where we are today because of that. And um, let's also be honest. I Actually, the book, the new book, the one I, I guess I'll be signing copies of later, it's brand new. In fact, it's so new it's not out yet. But uh, <laughs> I know we have some advanced copies uh, here, some boot, bootleg copies. Don't tell anybody, it's illegal, it's illegal. But, um, but the title of the new book, really the, really the thesis of it, um, which is what I wanna talk about now, but the title of it is Letter to the American Church. Now, I, I think any sane, biblical, God-fearing person would think, who does he think he is to write a book with a title like Letter to the American Church? That should be your first question, right? And I'm telling you, when I wrote it, I had that proper trepidation and fear that if I don't get out of the way and let the Lord speak, or if I write as though I'm writing for God, but it's my opinion, I know too much and I fear God too much to, to want to do that even slightly. 
So I wrote this book because I had, you know, what we Christians call a burden. This doesn't happen all the time, you know? Every time uh, we do what we do, it's not because I had this holy burden. I've, I've written other books um, for different reasons, but I gotta tell you, this book, um, I never even planned to write it. I just felt that the Lord wanted me to write it. And I won't go into the details because of the time, but it was just kind of this burning thing. And the original title of the book, I was, one day I just got angry. I think it was Mario Murillo who was talking about sanctified anger this morning, right? Sometimes you're motivated by anger in a good way. You're motivated because of the injustice. And at some point, sometime probably close to a year ago, I just realized, you know, we talked about the importance of reading the Bible and knowing the Bible and studying the Bible and all that. But folks, I, I say this to you with horror, okay? If you study the Bible and you do not live what you study, it is better that you didn't study it. If you, if you do something cavalierly and think, well, I'm covered, I, I know it, I, I memorize all the scripture verses. Memorizing scripture verses and knowing what the scripture says is only the first step. You gotta take the next step is live it out. And if you don't live it out, you are worse, you're a hypocrite and you're worse than an infidel because somebody who doesn't know what it says and doesn't do what it says is not as guilty as someone who says, I know what it says and does not live and do what it says. And so at the heart of Christian life, which we have not really taught in recent decades, we've become comfortable. We're Americans, we are unbelievably spoiled. We are so blessed that we are spoiled and that's what happens. We know this with our own kids. The more you have, the more blessed you are, the more tempted you are to take it for granted. And we in America have taken our blessings for granted and we have drifted and drifted and drifted away from God and we are where we are now. Well, the Lord in his infinite mercy, I believe is giving us a second chance. Now, when I say that, I believe the Lord always wants to give us as many chances as, as he can give us, but because he made us in his image, male and female, in case I need to clarify that. Yeah, yeah, in a new lab, they just discovered 160th gender like a week ago. Yeah, oh yeah, it's true, it's true. They just figured it out, it's, yeah, just trust the science. No, so the Lord created us, male and female in his, in his image, and when you make, when he makes us in his image, there's something chilling about that because it means he gives us free will. We can't get into Martin Luther right now, okay? There's a whole, we don't need to get into that theological debate. But the point is, he says to you and to me, I'm not gonna force you to do the right thing. That is a chilling, chilling thing because he can give us what he wants. He can say, I want you to do this, but he will not force us to do the right thing. And the reason I bring this up is I think of Germany in the 30s. Some of you know I wrote a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor, uh, martyr, hero, right? And, and uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that example, that model is such a blessing for us. The Lord gives us models in history. But Bonhoeffer in the 1930s was trying to communicate to the German church you must wake up now. You must speak now. You must risk your life now, risk your job now, risk your congregation, risk offending people. Now we must arise and stand against the satanic evil in this administration. The Nazis are wicked. And, and we, we, can't, we can't say Romans 13, uh, it's none of our business. We must speak up. And he tried and tried and tried. And if you read the book or if you know the story, you know what happened. Good German Christians said, nah, I'll skip it. The people of God over and over and over in the Old Testament, in modern times through history, do not behave as the people of God, right? Like we say, hey, Jeremiah, Isaiah, man, those prophets are awesome. In their day, they were not treated like heroes, right? Bonhoeffer in his day was effectively told, shut up. 
Please, young intellectual spoiled Berlin hothead, we don't need to hear what you have to say. We've got jobs, we've got congregations, please shut up and sit down. Well, Bonhoeffer knew from God that what was going on in Germany required the church to speak and if the church did not speak, there's no one else. The Lord appointed the church to be his voice to the voiceless, to be the conscience of the state. If the church does not live out that faith, not believe it, because belief is meaningless if you do not live it. It's false belief, it's fake belief that mocks God. You have to live out what you say you believe self-sacrificially. And unless you do that, it's worth nothing. And Bonhoeffer said to the church, church, this is our hour. We must wake up and stand against the Nazis. Well, we know the story. The church did not. And because the church did not, now we have to understand, it's very easy for us to put the, the Germans or the German Christians in a special little basket. Like, oh, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a, a crazy story. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with us. You know, they were, they were different. They were Germans, right? And now if you think that they were uniquely evil, you're as much of a racist as the German Nazis who thought the Jews were uniquely evil. All human beings are creating God's image. We're fallen. We need the Lord. God's no respecter of persons. So we have to understand that the German Christians in Germany at that time were exactly like the American Christians today. Now, that's for good and for ill, right? They were exactly like we are today. And we know from history that they failed. That, that those who did wake up, most of them woke up five minutes too late. Some of you know the story, uh, it's obviously in the, my Bonhoeffer book, but it's the story of Martin Niemöller, okay? He was a hero. He was a good guy. He did wake up and performed heroically, but he woke up five minutes too late. He knew that it was too late. And he wrote that famous poem, you know, when they came for the trade unionists, I didn't speak up because I was not a trade unionist. When they came for the communists, when they came for the whatever, I didn't speak up because I was not this, I was not that. And when they finally came for me, there was no one left to speak up, right? That's effectively what cancel culture is, right? When they come for Mike Lindell, when they come for just a few years ago, they came for my friend, Kirk Cameron, right? He was on Piers Morgan 10,000 years ago, eight years ago, I don't know, right? A little while ago. And same-sex marriage was the issue. And Kirk, in his, you know Kirk Cameron. Yeah, you know what a, a, a nasty bigot he can be, right? He's nasty, he's worse than Tim Tebow, just nasty religious spirit. So in the nicest way imaginable, he says, you know, I believe marriage is for a man and a woman or whatever it was, that, right? He stuck his neck out and they all came after him. And the silence of many pastors across America who did not speak up for him, did not stand up for him, is deafening. And it's because of that silence that we are where we are today. Now that's one example, but you see it over and over in history that Somebody says, I'll stick my neck out, but who will stand with that person? So the Nazis were able to pick people off one at a time to threaten you. If you do this, you're gonna pay a price. You're gonna pay a price, you're gonna pay a price. Now, this ought to be comedic for Christians, right? Because we're supposed to believe Jesus actually defeated death on the cross. It's not a metaphor. He actually defeated death on the cross. Therefore, we fear nothing. We fear, no, we don't fear death. I know a little secret. You can't kill me. When you kill me, I will live forever. Now, the point is, are we living that way? Are we living that way? And are our leaders exhorting us to live that way? And to say, I will not bow the knee to bail, I will not go along with that lie or that lie or that lie. Are we, are we living that way and have our leaders counseled us to live that way? Well, the short answer has been no. Um, the American church, the silence of the American church in the last number of years 
is the reason America is speeding to hell in a handbasket now. Because of the silence of the church. That's who God will blame. So I look at it and I say, this is exactly what happened to the German church. And the reason I felt I had to write this book is I said, the German church did not have the example of the German church of the 1930s, in the 1930s. They were living it. They didn't have the example. God has given us through the story of the German church, and so many people read the, the, the story of Bonhoeffer, we know what happens when the church blinks, when the church is silent, when the church shrinks back and says, uh, I think I'll just shut up for 10 more minutes. It's not time yet. I don't wanna lose. There's some people in my congregation might get upset if I take a, they'll, they'll say I'm being political. That's exactly what evil always counts on. And the Nazis who were brilliant knew that many of the pastors they were dealing with were, if not exactly cowards, they were meek. They misinterpreted the scripture and they made Christianity what people like Nietzsche said about Christianity and what Hitler thought about Christianity. In other words, they lived out a kind of faith that was not the robust, muscular, living, self-sacrificial, bold faith that God calls us to live, but it was a kind of a pious faith, a faith that says, I don't want to, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to cause trouble. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want uh, them to shut down my church. I better keep my mouth shut. Folks, I wrote the book, Letter to the American Church, because I said precisely what happened in Germany, which we, we just in our arrogance think, oh, could never happen here. Not only could it happen here, it is happening here now because of the silence now of many, if not most, Christian leaders. And when I say Christian leaders, I'm not talking about dead mainstream Protestantism. That, they were gone, you know, in dribs and drabs over the last hundred years. You know, we're not looking them to, to, for them to stand boldly. But the church of Jesus Christ, the evangelical church, born again churches, large churches where people praise Jesus and carry Bibles, those churches in many cases have been silenced or have silenced themselves. And I said, what happened in Germany is happening now, and I believe the Lord forced me to write the book of Bonhoeffer, in retrospect, I realized, as a warning to us today, and to say this is exactly what will happen to you unless you repent, unless you do the works that you used to do and have ceased doing, unless you do what they didn't do in Germany, unless you learn that lesson, and understand that God is a judge and he will let his judgment fall on you just as he let it fall on Germany. Why do you think he wouldn't? Why do you think in your arrogance he wouldn't let that happen to you? The Germans in Germany thought that of themselves. They thought, what are you kidding? Bonhoeffer gave a speech. In the book I write about a speech he gave in 1932. This is two and a half, three months before Hitler really takes power. And he gave the speech in the most august church in Berlin. This was the place where, where you'd find all of the, 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 the big shots. Von Hindenburg, this national icon, would come. If, if he came to church, he would come to there. It was that kind of a church. It was a church that celebrated, you know, the union of church and state in the good sense. When the, when the, when the, when the state wanted to prop up the church and stand with the church. Now, we in America kind of know that could go wrong, so we don't want that, right? because uh, we won't get into that right now. But, but in that church, Bonhoeffer gave a sermon on Reformation Day, 1932. Now imagine this, Reformation Day in Germany, okay, that's the day they celebrate, you know, the kickoff of the Reformation, Luther uh, nailing the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg uh, and, and, and all of that, okay? So imagine the national pride in Germany, right? Thinking today is Reformation Day, Luther is our man. We invented Christianity. Let's face it, right? 
Now, there, there, are, there are a lot of believers today who kind of have that kind of pride. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, like Christianity started in my church. You know, this is a, imagine being a Lutheran in Germany on Reformation Day in this church. It, it, it's kind of like July 4th. And, you know, you just be filled with pride. Now, pride can be a good thing. We know that, right? But when it turns away from God, when you forget God, and Bonhoeffer knew, he knew that their celebration on Reformation Day that day, that the German church was utterly asleep, if not dead. And he could see prophetically. And you know what I mean by prophetically? He, he was not Pentecostal. He was not, we don't, there are very, various ways the Lord speaks to people. But he knew, he knew that the church was not awake to the evil that was rising. And that if they did not wake up, it was over. And this young man gave this amazing speech, which was effectively like insulting to the audience and saying, unless you wake up. Now, we know they didn't heed his message. We know they didn't wake up. But the punchline to this part of the story is that in 1940, I'm forgetting the year, I think, well, it was 43, maybe 43, but the point is during the war, that church was bombed by the allies and it is a busted hulk. I mean, when, if, when you think of the glory of that building and what it meant when Bonhoeffer was preaching there and he's sort of warning prophetically, church, wake up or else, wake up. God is speaking, wake up, act now. And they did not. And if you visit Berlin, some of you have, and you visit that church, you just go, wow, God, this is kind of on the nose. This is kind of like lightning didn't strike the church, but it's as close as anything you ever see to God's judgment in, in, in a way. But you don't need to think about that church. You need to think about Germany. So Bonhoeffer was trying to wake up the church and trying to say to the church, you must speak, you must act. Now, why didn't they act? They didn't act for the same reasons that many... American Christians are not acting. We, we have, look, because we're all sinners, we know we are all capable of every idiocy imaginable, right? We're not immune. We could, we could swallow every lie and then 50 years later go, oh, you know, I, we didn't know. We didn't know. Well, that's the German church at that time. But, but the reasons they did not act and speak against the satanic evil were very similar to the reasons we in America are being silent today. And what I'm saying in the book obviously is if we do not wake up and if we do not get serious and begin living out our faith in every realm, in every single realm, and obviously that includes the political realm, it includes every realm. If we do not do that, precisely what happened to Germany will happen to us, it is happening to us and I think it's happening to us now in part as the Lord's mercy as a wake-up call. How bad do things have to get before you will wake up and understand that there's this thing called evil that will devour you in America just as it will devour anyone anywhere. You're not immune. You have been unbelievably uniquely blessed. And that's why the Lord expects even more of us. So what are the reasons that the German church didn't act very similar to the reasons many of us don't act today? One of them would be what we call Romans 13, right? As if the whole Bible was summed up in Romans 13. Now, you could preach several sermons on Romans 13, but the point is Romans 13, but the point is that Luther, who was idolized by German Lutherans, and you know that idolatry is not a good thing, did you know that? Yeah. Yeah, they kind of, you know, they kind of let things slip, so they're not as focused on Jesus, they're focused on Luther. Not good. Um, Luther, by the way, did not die on the cross. I don't know if you knew that. Yes. And Luther knew that. But the Germans of 100 years ago, they kind of forgot. So they were so focused on Luther that they would just cavalierly, as we do today, just go like Romans 13. It's simple. It's clear as a bell. We're not supposed to speak against the, uh, the governing authorities. You know, they've been put in place. It's, it's all very simple. Well, it's obviously not very simple. It's way more complicated than that. You have to look at the context of Romans 13. Imagine there was a book written recently, and I am utterly horrified 
at the bad theology of leading pastors. I won't mention the name of the pastor who wrote a book recently, how we shouldn't be political, but I'll, I'll give you the initials, Andy Stanley. <laughs> you, can, you can probably figure it out. But the point is, I read this and I thought to myself, there are people that have studied the Bible their whole lives and they preach the Bible week after week after week and there's some basic things that they don't get. And that's a horror, folks. That's a horror to study the Bible, but to not get the point at certain times, right? It's horrifying. It, it should, that should put the fear of God in us. Are, am I getting the point? Am I getting what Jesus wants me to get? Well, the reason I'm bringing this up is that Romans 13, one thing you can say about that passage is it was written in the first century to a bunch of Romans by a Roman citizen. They did not have self-government and liberty at that time. So for someone like Paul to be writing about the governing authorities, you know, it's not utterly different from where we are today, but in many ways it's different from, from where we are today. Today, you could argue that we the people are the governing authorities and that we, we are burdened by God with liberty, that we must govern ourselves and that we must uh, behave politically and govern ourselves because we've been given this insane, unprecedented blessing in history of liberty and self-government. And so we have to take that responsibility. So even the idea that, well, these people in authority and you know, we better be careful, you think, well, yeah, yeah, I, I, I understand that we're supposed to respect the authorities, but do you understand that the, the authority is not Nero? The, the, authority is, the authorities are those we elect, theoretically. Well, we don't need to get into that. Um, but the point is, our system says we have no king, we are the kings, or better yet, we have no king but Jesus. We govern ourselves because we fear God and we elect people to help us do what we need to do. And so, so this idea that we would today say, Romans 13, folks, if you understand what it means to be an American and to have this unprecedented, undeserved gift of liberty where you govern yourself, you don't just say, well, the government, the government. You're supposed to be the government. You're supposed to govern yourselves. It's like when people criticize the church, it's like, yeah, excuse me, you're the church. Like, you gotta get that, right? So when we today would say, well, Romans 13, it's very simple. It's at least not simple, folks. It is at least not simple. It's quite complicated. And, and then if you're gonna take Romans 13 and imply, well, that means we're not supposed to be political. It's very clear from the scriptures. We're not supposed to be political. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Now, the reason it's a lie from the pit of hell is because we are supposed to be about doing our father's business. And if somebody wants to label it this or that, label it whatever you want. Mary Marilla put it brilliantly that, you know, people say, you stay in your lane. You're not supposed to, you're not, excuse me, folks. When we're talking about the scriptures, when we're talking about truth, we're talking about reality. We're not talking about Christian reality. We're not talking about Christian truth. There's no such thing as Christian truth. There's no such thing as Christian reality or Christian history. There's this thing called history and truth and reality. And we know the author of those things is the God of the scripture. We know that. So you can't divide it out and say, well, that's your little religious corner. You go in your little religious corner and you have your little Christian truth and your little Christian reality but out here in the secular world, you know, we kind of, we have a different way of seeing things. Folks, that kind of religious liberty they have in China, okay? It's not religious liberty. That's what, it's where they use those weasel words, freedom of worship, right? You go in your little weird building and do your parochial little things on Sunday morning, but when you come out, you bow to the secular authority of the state. This is America. In America, our founders specifically gave us religious liberty so that we would carry what we, theolo what we theoretically get 
on Sunday morning into all the world in every way to exercise our faith because all of the founders, as David said earlier, all of the founders understood that without virtue and without a good amount of serious Christians in the, in the citizenry, you're not gonna have liberty. You, you, can't, you can't get liberty, you can't get self-government unless you have people understand that we're gonna govern ourselves, we're gonna answer to God. So this idea that somehow we could have liberty and freedom, whatever, but, but that now the government could say to us, uh, by the way, uh, that doesn't apply in most of life. That's just this little religious thing. Get in your little religious lane. Don't be political. And then to have people in the church agree with that lie and misunderstand that just as the German Christians understood that. We just want to preach the gospel. We just want to preach the gospel. I, I would maintain, folks, that if you don't speak the truth, first of all, let's be blunt. If you speak the truth on critical race theory, on the lie, this Marxist organization called BLM, uh, on socialism, whatever. If you love your neighbors, if you love your enemies, if you are under the authority of Jesus Christ, you are obliged to speak the truth on all of these issues for the sake of all those in this nation who, whose lives are being crushed by these wicked ideologies. That you're not saying this because you say, well, I'm a Christian and I don't, I'm not into the transgender thing. Who cares, folks? We're talking about what is truth. And we're talking about young people whose lives are being ruined because the church is being silent. And if the church is being silent, the church is encouraging others to be silent. If you're a parent in this country and you're not sure what you believe, you're not born again, and you're looking around, well, if the church is not speaking boldly on every one of these issues, you're certainly not going to stick your neck out. The church is supposed to lead on these issues because of the love of Jesus for strangers, for people in our community. If you care about young people, if you care about blacks and urban poor, you are obliged to speak out against the lies of socialism and critical race theory. And, and all of these things, they're not just wrong, they're harmful lies that are harming people. And you, are supposed to care about those strangers just as Wilberforce laid his whole life on the line for African slaves he would never meet, but he know that God loves them. He knew God loved them and God appointed him to use his influence and his voice to do anything he could for their sake. All of these invisible strangers that he would never meet, God commanded him to sacrificially with the agape love of God, live his life to do right for them. Because slavery didn't affect William Wilberforce. He could have just had a nice life. He would have been prime minister, probably. But he said, well, I have to serve God. And what the word of God says has to be lived out in every sphere of life. What spheres of life? Well, every sphere of life. Well, he was a politician. And he said, I have to speak out on these issues. Everyone in those days, almost everyone, except you know, the Jesus freaks, the evangelicals, the born-again Bible bangers, they were against slavery and the slave trade. But all the Church of England and all of the respectable people said, Mr. Wilberforce, keep your faith private. Keep your politics out of faith and your faith out of politics. Please shut up. We, we hate you. We reject you. He said, well, listen, I fear God. And I'm going to live my life in concordance with, with what I believe God wants me to do. And I'm going to live my life to abolish the slave trade. But I cannot tell you how many so-called Christians told him to shut up and to sit down. I can't tell you how many Christians told Bonhoeffer to shut up and to stop being political. Romans 13. It is no different today. We are obliged by God to speak out on these issues. And the fact of the matter is, what people said in Bonhoeffer's day, all the German, I mean all, many of the Germans would say, we just wanna preach the gospel. We're just called to preach the gospel. Folks, what is the gospel? Do we even know what the gospel is? How do we cavalierly say the gospel, the gospel, the gospel? What is the gospel? What thin, dead gospel do you think you're gonna be allowed to preach if you are afraid to speak about the truth for everyone, even when it costs you something? What gospel do you offer? If, I'm, if I was a pagan in America, I would not be interested in your dead religious gospel. 
So it's very nice that you think you'll be allowed to preach it, you know, when the atheist regime comes, which is coming. It's just, it's comical. It's comical. What dead gospel do you think that, oh, you get to preach the gospel? I write, there's a chapter in the book, um, Letter to the American Church, where I, I call the idol of evangelism. Let's think about this. Every good thing, and usually the best things, are the things that the enemy wants to turn into an idol, into a counterfeit, so that you just miss God. So it's the voice of the enemy who says, keep your mouth shut on that issue, and that issue, and that issue, and you'll get to preach the gospel. A lot of Christians bought that. They bought that. I was at the NRB, okay, National Religious Broadcasters Convention, and someone, a major figure as prominent as Andrew Womack was in a room sharing about his radio ministry and I will not share his name, but I will tell you, he said, <laughs> I, I just thought I'm, I'm making this up, like this can't be true. He said in his radio ministry, he had assiduously avoided any number of issues so that he wouldn't get canceled so that he could continue to preach the gospel. And I just sat there and I just died a thousand deaths in that room because I thought to myself, that guy's a good man. I know that. He doesn't want to worship the devil or serve the devil, but he thinks he's doing the right thing. And I just want to say, ladies and gentlemen, let me just say because of his silence and because of the silence of many, many, many other pastors like him, when you open your mouth, you're in infinitely greater danger of being canceled because of his silence. And that's the way it goes. And I sat there and I thought to myself, my radio show, the Eric Metaxas show, which we had put on YouTube, which we had almost a quarter of a million subscribers, was completely canceled by YouTube. Why? Because of the obscenity that I spew in my program? What, what was it that made the think, think about where we are. Because if, if any of you listen to my program, you would laugh because you'd say, what? Can't, like, like just shut down, destroyed, can't, wiped out? Yes, because I dared to speak, not even very boldly half the time. I would just have on a guest. I had on my Yale classmate, Naomi Wolf, who is a hero, okay? She's politically liberal. She's not where we are theologically, but she knows enough to know that Vaccine passports are satanic and in inhuman, whatever. So she's been speaking on this and other issues with tremendous boldness. Would that the church were as bold as many people like that, right? But I had her on my show and because I had her on my show, she worked for the Gore campaign. This is, this is you know, this is hilarious to me. Because I had her on the show talking about vaccine passports, that was strike three for YouTube and they wiped us off. It's cost us tremendously financially. When you put something out on YouTube, this is like Facebook or any of these things, right? It's, it's kind of like a monopoly. So you put it on Rumble, it'll get a tenth as much stuff. They wiped it out. So all the evangelistic stuff that I have, all kinds of stuff that you can't search it, uh, you can't find it on YouTube, it's not as easy. But what's the point I'm making? The point I'm making is that if you speak the truth, you may well have to pay some price, right? But your response as a Christian should be, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm counted worthy to pay some price. People have paid with their lives. People have paid with their lives and the lives of their families. It's unbelievable the prices that have been paid. And I tell you, to the shame of the church, the prices that have been paid by pagans. How many died for liberty in America? who they would not say I'm a born again believer, but they have some innate belief in rightness and truth and goodness and they're willing to die for that. And believers have said, well, I'm gonna take a pass. I just wanna preach the gospel. And I think to myself, ladies and gentlemen, this is a satanic lie. And my hero became my friend, Chuck Colson. He would quote in almost every speech uh, the famous Dutch theologian and statesman, Abraham Kuyper. Almost in every speech, Chuck would say, Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch in all creation, 
over which Jesus Christ, who is sovereign, does not say mine. The Lord is the Lord over all creation. You know, not only is he the Lord over all truth, he is truth. So the idea that we would say, well, we're just going to have our little parochial faith in this little religious corner. When it comes to the issues of anything else, we're just going to bow before some secular authorities. Well, folks, let me tell you something. You know, even if we didn't know that what we believe is true, we would still have an obligation to say, I'm, I'm going to speak what I believe to, to be true because I want to, I want to share not just, you know, what we say, the gospel. I want to share truth because it, it's all wrapped up with the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is the freedom to speak truth on every subject. I mean, you know, what's supposed to happen when you preach the gospel? People get saved and then they get, you know, zapped up to heaven. No, it doesn't work out that way. A lot of us are still here, right? No, no. When you get saved, you've crossed the starting line. That's that. A lot of people think it's this finish line. We're done. Now what? You know, just uh, do evangelism. There's nothing else. Are you kidding? The, the church of Jesus Christ has done so much in history by God's grace. The Lord led believers to create a country called America so that we could govern ourselves and not be under the yoke of tyranny. He, he led believers to abolish the slave trade. He's led believers to, to create hospitals and every kind of thing. We are to be salt and light in every part of reality God has deputized us. And when somebody says, don't be political, you have to say that there's no such thing. There's just truth. And if I speak the truth about the unborn, if I speak the truth about sexuality and marriage and about genders uh, and, and about what, what system uh, of economics is gonna help the poor and what's gonna harm the poor. And if I say this candidate is the one you should elect because he will help these things. And, and, I, and I mention the name Donald Trump because I believe in my crazed mind that he might do a better job than Hillary Clinton or something like that. The idea that Christians shouldn't be allowed to say that is insanity. And we have participated in our own silence. Somehow we have said, well, I don't want to lose my 501c3 status. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. Folks, better that we never would have 501c3 status than it would muzzle us from speaking the truth of God. I know for a fact that those places, those churches that are being bold on all of these issues, precisely the opposite of what they're being told is happening. You're being told you're going to lose people. Their churches are exploding because not just Christians, non-Christians, all kinds of people are so hungry for truth amidst the madness and hungry for courage amidst the cowardice that they're flocking to these churches. Rob McCoy's church is a classic example and he's one of the worst preachers I know. I, I just had to say that. He's one of the worst, okay, one of the worst. I'm not, I'm not kidding when I tell you, Rob McCoy and all those others who have been bold, they have had atheists coming to their church, hungry for this thing they didn't even think they believed in called truth. I just want to say that we really... We are so privileged to live at this moment in history. We are so privileged to live at a moment when your faith counts. But I want to say this, and I'll, I'll talk about this tomorrow. Your faith is not just what you say you believe, okay? A lot of times, every great thing, I mentioned evangelism, every great thing can be just twisted a little bit by the enemy into a lie. So that you say, well, I just don't want to say anything controversial because I, I might lose a soul. You, you need to understand that if you do not speak the truth, you will lose many souls. If you speak the truth, you will attract people to this thing. They're going to look at you and say, what is that? Where does he get that boldness? And, 
And where does he get that fire to talk about these things? I'm, I'm interested. I don't even know what it is, but I, I want to know more because it's become increasingly rare in this culture and especially in churches. And all of those who have been bold on these issues have seen their churches grow. And those other churches that are trying to cling to what they had and to kind of go, to go back to whatever it was before, man, they're struggling. And you know, that's called the free market. That's called the free market. People vote with their feet. They say, I'm not going to that church anymore because now I kind of know some things about them that they're not, uh, they're not quite on the same page that I had hoped that they were on. I saw how they behaved during the pandemic and you know what, I, I, times are tough. I need to see life and joy and faith and power. I need to see these things. I really do think folks that this idea that faith without works is dead, we need to understand the, the church in America, we really have bought into this idea. And again, Luther and all of these, these heroes have, they say things, but we take it a little beyond where God takes it. And we say it's by faith alone, faith alone, faith alone, faith alone. What does that mean? What do you mean by faith? What do you mean by faith? If your faith is not lived out in your life, it's obvious you don't really believe. Isn't it obvious? The enemy knows you don't believe. He looks at your life and he sees what you believe. Your friends, your neighbors, your enemies, they look at your life, they see what you believe by how you act. It's obvious. So where do we get this idea, this enlightenment idea that it's about what I believe up here. It's about these statements of faith. What do you believe? Well, go to my church's website and there's a statement of faith, that's what I believe. What do you believe? I believe the Nicene Creed, I believe the Bible. Do you understand that the, even the Bible can be used as a fig leaf, as an offense to God when you say, I believe that, when you obviously don't. You're using it as a way to say, well, that's good enough, that's all I need, all I need is faith. But the point is that God says, no, you need actual faith. You need actual faith. And if you do not live out what you say you believe, then you don't believe it. And then according to your own definition, you are not saved. Let's think about that. So people say, you're talking about salvation by works? No, no. We're talking about salvation by actual faith in the Son of God, who died for me and rose from the dead, that if I actually believe that, there is no way it will not change my life and give me a boldness and a fire and a courage because I actually believe Jesus defeated death. It's not some intellectual idea. I actually believe it, I know it. I know that I will have the privilege to be with him in glory. This is true and when I know that's true, I'm gonna live radically different than somebody who doesn't believe it. Now Bonhoeffer lived that way. And if you wanna know what happens when you believe those things, you will live differently and you will die differently. When somebody dies knowing that, you know, here's a secret, I'm not really gonna die. In fact, I've been pretty much dead. I'm now going to real life. These are the shadow lands. If you know that, you don't just say it, but you actually know that. Folks, do you understand, according to what the Bible says, we are supposed to look forward to what the world calls death. We're supposed to long to be with him. And if we don't, we are fools. And most of us, to some extent, let's be honest, of course we are fools. We need to remind ourselves over and over and over and over again that the greatest life imaginable here cannot begin to compare with what it will be to be in his presence. We need to know that. I think a lot of people say, well, I hope that's true. Oh, I hope so, yes, I hope so. Well, if you hope so, folks, you're out of God's will. God wants you to know it. He's given you plenty evidence to know that those things are true and to long for him and to be free, to walk freely 
and to have no fear of what man can do to you, put you in jail, persecute you, kill you. You could lose your job. You say, well, the Lord will get me another job or the Lord, the Lord, the Lord can do anything. Parentheses created the universe, defeated death on the cross. That's God. And I cannot conceivably outgive him. When I sacrifice by living for him now and by speaking fearlessly for others in this country, by speaking the truth and being part of the church of Jesus Christ, I, I know I can't lose. Whatever sacrifice I make is nothing compared to what I will get back. I, I can't even begin to talk about it. Folks, when the church will begin to live like that's true, we won't even, we won't even have to think about what's the future of America. This country will not merely be restored to some vision of greatness from our past, but we will go way, way beyond it. We will so glow like the this, this city shining on a hill that Jesus talks about and that John Winthrop talks about and that innumerable presidents, presidents have quoted. We are to so shine as an example of liberty Liberty that really cannot exist in any form without tons of believing Christians. That's just the way it is. So we can't force people to become Christians, but I will tell you that if you don't have the majority of the citizenry or at least a large part of the citizenry really believing this and leading the way in the culture, you cannot have liberty. But when you have it, people around the world who long for it look at you and they think, what? What can I do to get that? How did you get that? What is that? You're free in your country? When Tocqueville came here in the 1820s, he marveled. He marveled because they had a revolution in France that went exactly the other way. It was anti-God. It was violent. It was bloody. It was a bloodbath. It did not succeed. It was utopianist. It was basically Marxism. It was basically the same lie over and over and over again. And Tocqueville came here and he said, how do you do what you do? What's your secret? Well, he understood that the heart of it all, very simple answer, the churches, the people who really believe they are just, they are governing themselves. They don't, they don't, need, they don't need anything. They govern themselves. They don't need some government to govern them. It's never been done in the history of the world before. And Franklin, and I'll talk about this tomorrow, said that, you know, in the Constitution, the founders gave us a republic if we can keep it. Franklin understood there's no way we can be forced to keep it. There's no document, there's no law. Freedom has to come from within. We do it because we voluntarily obey God and truth and goodness. We do it voluntarily. If we do that, we keep the republic. We enable ourselves to continue to be free. If we don't teach those ideas to every generation, it goes away. We are now at the point where it has effectively gone away, but I, I believe from the bottom of my heart, I don't say this out of a sense of naive hopefulness, I believe the Lord is speaking to his church now and saying, you, I choose you to live out your faith self-sacrificially, prove by your behavior that you believe what my word says and that you know who I really am. And when you live that way, you will see revival and reformation and glorious things. You will see God's will be done in your generation. How extraordinary that we are allowed to live at this time and to be his voices in this time. Lord, the Lord has given us this beautiful, beautiful opportunity and to squander it would be the greatest nightmare imaginable. It is a glorious, glorious opportunity for you and me to do now. The Lord says, please, if you love me, do this. Do not go the way of the German church in the 30s. I have given you enough information and enough love and enough evidence so that you know what you need to do. Now go and do it in his name. Amen. God bless you.
Praise the Lord. Amen. Wow, what a lineup, huh? Um, I w- I'd like to take just a few minutes. Uh, we're going to take a break here in just a minute. But before we do, um, I'd like to give you an opportunity uh, to join again in with Truth and Liberty uh, and worship the Lord with your, with your finances. Um, and if our ushers are prepared to come forward, that would be great. I just want to say a few words. Um, in the book of Nehemiah, you heard uh, some of our speakers talking about Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah, the, the Jews were in a similar situation, a similar time as what we face here in America. How many of you would agree that our walls are broken down, right? The enemy has broken down our walls, and we could talk about what those walls are, the walls of family, the walls of morality, the wall of faith, the wall of, uh, you know, uh, freedom, and many others. But God is calling us to restore those walls, and I want to share a scripture with you out of the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 4, Excuse me, the, it jumped on me here. He says in verse 13, Therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall, and on the higher places I even set the people after their families, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight. Fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And guys, I just want to say today that we are hearing from the Holy Spirit a clarion call to fight today. And, it's, and, and Nehemiah said there, he said he, he put the families in order on the wall. What I want to say is it's not all up to you and it's not all up to me. What it depends on is each and every one of us doing our part in our realm of influence, standing on the place, on our assignment on the wall to fight in the assignment that God's given us. And one of the opportunities that you have right now in this conference is to come alongside Truth and Liberty. Be a part of what we're doing. Do you know every week, every one of these speakers that you've heard so far has been a guest on the Truth and Liberty livecast, right? So if you come and partner with us, you become a member of Truth and Liberty, you're actually helping us to present that same inspiration, that same information to the body of Christ where we're reaching tens and even hundreds of thousands of people every week. Do you know there are 3,000 people watching this conference right now online? Would Would you like to be a part of making that happen? You can do that with your offering, with your finances. I just want to challenge you. Become a Truth and Liberty member today. We thank you so much for your generosity. So if the ushers want to go ahead and uh, pass those buckets, that would be awesome. While, you, while they're doing that, I want to share a second scripture. This one is just a typical offering scripture, okay? Do you know, uh, if you have your Bibles, I want you to look at Psalm chapter 35. Psalm chapter 35, verse 27 It says this, and we're going to break here in just a minute, but it says, let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which hath pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. So just a little teaching for you here. How many of you heard that verse before? You probably only hear the second part, right? God has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. You ever heard that part? No? Andrew, we need to teach on finances here. Okay, guys, so God has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant, but listen to the first half. It says, let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. What I want you to know is that in the Hebrew, the word that's translated favor is the exact same word that later in the verse is translated hath pleasure. So if we read it literally, God is saying here, let them shout for joy and be glad that um, delight in my righteous cause, let them say continually that the Lord be magnified because I delight in your righteous cause. Okay, there's, a, there's an equality here. If we put God's cause first in our finances, he puts our financial cause first on his agenda. God will bless you if you get behind his work. You, you understand? It's easy, it's simple. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Thank you guys so much for your generosity. We're going to take a 15-minute break now, and we'll be back in here at 4 o'clock to introduce our next speaker. You know who it's going to be? 
All right, then. All right, we're dismissed. Come back at 4 o'clock.